This episode of The Logic Podcast is brought to you by AJA, together with Flame since 2006. If you would like anything that Boris FX has to offer, including Synthize, you can save 15% with our new affiliate links by going to logic.tv slash BorisFX. Logic Academy Pro. Learn, connect, advance with Autodesk Flame. When you get a chance, check out logicacademypro.com to see all the amazing educational offerings that we have. Yeah, Jordy, welcome, and thank you so much for coming on. Ever since you joined the Logic Forum, your posts were like really cool, you know, showing your work and like what you're doing with Rotow and like how you guys are cloud-based oriented. So that's another reason why I really want you on the show to explore your workflow. And, but I think before we totally dive into that, what's your background with posts? Like, how did you get into post-production? I guess like everybody from our age is through very strange coincidence in life. I did start programming computers when I was 12. By 17, I was professionally developing software for Siemens Nixdorf, one of the biggest software manufacturers in the world. Nice. Um, and then I studied architecture, which has always been my passion. So I quit that job, moving to, into studying full-time architecture in Barcelona, which is, is brutal. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's brutal. And on the way, of course, one thing led to another and my interest in computers and graphics and the fact that I knew how they worked at the time allowed me to start doing architectural visualization. Now oh, it's cool. bread and butter, but at the time it was revolutionary. And then at some point, my teacher started to hire me to do the visualizations of their buildings. And at some point through a grant, I got uh, talent hunted to support Spanish TV on a virtual studio with a software called Brainstorm. Oh. It was amazing. I really enjoyed it. So that led me to do a bit of advertising and I found it super fun and freedom, not politics like that in architecture. So in a way, I'm an architect gone bad. Mm, okay. <laughs> my studies, I moved into working. I got really disappointed about the state of the industry in Spain in architecture. And that led me to move into CG. I come from the world of CG animation, etc. Oh, okay. And of my passions. And one thing that I found very interesting during that journey is that I felt a lot more freedom doing advertising and creating new things in this very pioneering days, let's be honest. And that led me to to, to work on a few companies in Spain, like Animatica, Filmmax, Toronto, and then moving to London just to freelance for a week and a week turned into 24 years. <laughs> no <laughs> way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's amazing. But I was having so much fun. It was a blast because normally I was having working with some incredible artists and talent that I was learning a lot. Not only that, is that they were paying me decently and treating me well rather than treating me like a joke, which, which is the state on the industry at that time in Spain. It was a bit of a flaky thing. Mm. In, CG, in CG in the early days, it was also like, what is that? It doesn't look any good. And it, it, I didn't look any good at the beginning, of course. It didn't. <laughs> but as it matured, it started to take over little by little certain areas. So the journey took me to a company here doing TV series. And then I always wanted to work at the mill at the time. And I remember a commercial they did for SAP that blew my mind and Guinness blew my mind. Okay. So I wanted to work with these guys. And I guess I was at the right point, at the right place. 
And one thing that I was thinking was it would be a little freelance gig turning to 10 years at the mill and moving wow. up the ladder into co-head of CG uh, and working with some of the best artists I ever met, Barnes and Neil Davies and all the like flame artists that yeah. to me were, they were true magic and they elevated the CG I was doing with the team to a complete new level and learned a lot on the way, of course. That's awesome. So that, that has been the journey. And then, of course, from there, we, I did my thing. But the reality is that it, it has been always an education and discovery process. Right. Never planned. Yeah. You mentioned a piece of software I've never heard of before. Did you say Brainstorm? Yeah. Spain has a lot of engineering capacity. And there was this company in Valencia, it was, that they developed virtual reality software in the early 90s. And, and oh, cool alive today and they still do it today for real-time television and we were hooking up professional tv cameras the canon enormous with huge lenses remember into a live environment and each of the cameras will have a silicon graphics inferno like machine behind oh yeah okay it cost a fortune but it was amazing and that was my first introduction to python they instantly saw the value so in a way all clicked in a very strange way but we were designing the graphics and the spanish tv were really bold and they decided to do a virtual environment in the mid 90s or 94 something like that mm -hmm. for the news so every single day three times a day the system had to be operational i was insane wow and, and i must confess some of the engineering and consulting that a good friend of mine, Jordi Alonso, did, that was incredible. And obviously being able to play with these big toys, very talented people around me, amazing engineers. I learned about color with them. I learned a lot about lighting with them. Like oh, lighting cool. of stages. Yeah. I had a master class with the best lighting technician in the Spanish television. So that was like, wow. That's, <laughs> so, that's cool. Yeah. That was, that was super cool. I'm super actually cool. curious, now that you mentioned lighting, did that help your CG work? Oh, as yeah. Well? Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. I light using exactly the same techniques that these guys use to light sets on wow. studio. Wow. Oh, cool. Now, I, uh, yeah, and, and it was very simple because they plan the location of the light because they kind of move them around all the time. It takes time. And then they will go... Uh, on faces, so, okay, I'm lighting this side, I'm lighting this side, then in the back, then see how that works, then the hero spots, etc., etc. And I, that's what I use in 3D as well. Nice, that's so cool. Yeah. And then I guess so. What was the transition like going from more of an architecture CG to then working, let's say, at the mill where it's more for broadcast TV, right? Like it's. Yeah a different media what was that transition like and maybe even workflows like how did the workflows change for you yeah. the the good and bad things for me is uh, there are things i will never be able to disconnect with uh, there are things in life that you are trained when you're young and that stays with you forever so if you are in the world of for example pure design the output pixel is the king and you can tell on the designers right they value the path but the result is king and for me coming from the world of architecture and you have to understand the context of that. You only have one goal at the building. You design, the plan is approved, the plan is calculated, budgeted, everything, and then you go and build it. And then mm -hmm. you don't move, you don't move, you don't move a pillar, or you don't change a roof yeah. because the whole <laughs> building will fall, right? Yeah. So you only have one goal. And from that perspective, I have always, I have always been extremely picky and pine light driven in the sense of having a solid foundation from where I can start working on. So 
when I arrive to any other company, not just Emil, every company, they use uh, systems and procedures that were very valid, of course. Mm-hmm. They use amazing work. But oh, I always found that, oh, this could be improved a bit. And I found the environment, in particular the mill, really invigorating at the time. And of course, has changed, but it, because they allow me to play. They allow me to do things. So when I arrived there as the freelancer, I started to do the jobs and, and all was good. And then I talking to Dave Levy, who was the head of uh, R&D. We started to tinker and I told him, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? And I would program the little code in Softimash uh, to oh, do cool. that for you. So you don't need to bother. And in a way, it felt like a super friendly environment of people trying to do things right and work in a clever way. That's the key. And people that were not perhaps that technical at the time, like, for example, Russell or Itej or whoever, right? They also embrace it. And one thing led to another. And together we build the foundation of a pipeline that at the time allows us then later to do some incredible projects. And then obviously as the whole thing grew, they brought now this time dedicated software developers to grow even bigger and develop the pipeline. But I remember from the render farm design that Dave did to the underlying backbone and the electric structure that was built by me at the time, it was always well received and if it, something was not working we will change it and that's it right. and, and i guess i'm explaining all this because the whole philosophy is exactly what i'm doing at rota is exactly the same i'm building the whole company and especially systems so they can be changed the design of our systems is not to make asset tracking or things like that which is super technical i don't want to get there i just want to allow us to flow and move and evolve because it's an industry in change, right? Yeah, it was, it was almost like you were t- also a technical director along with being a yeah. CG artist, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but at the time, and it's, it's funny you say that because at the time, all the CG artists could program and many of them really well because they came from the technical side. Very few came from the art side. Oh, the okay. Now, so now finding a CGR that can program in C++ is like a miracle almost. By then, it was oh, yeah. all of us could program C. Okay. It is. Yeah, it's funny you mention that. And watching old behind the scenes on whatever Blu-ray or DVD, it was pretty amazing just seeing how people were coding. And maybe I think maybe they weren't even just like, coding from scratch, but like they had to write code just to get yeah. the software to, <laughs> to yeah, do yeah. what they want. Yeah. yeah, and I remember, for example, one of the interesting business, particularly in CG, and many may not remember that many software packages were command-driven. You couldn't have a mouse to click on things. Yes. Program it. When you were writing a shader, you literally were into a text editor, writing the shader wow. and seeing the results. And that's the reason it was so slow and clunky. It mm-hmm. took ages for us to get out of that. So with Softimage and then Alias and with Power Animator and then finally Maya arrived, then yeah. the whole paradigm changed into a mouse-driven, artistic-friendly, which has evolved a lot. Houdini has been perhaps the last of the group to evolve into that, which is the reason now the resurgence on, on, on the whole is growing massively, is because they have managed to pack all the capacity that Houdini has but now it's easy to use. Them. That's right. They, yeah, they, you could use nodes now. You don't have to write code. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned something interesting too a, a little bit ago where you said when you went to the mill and you met some of the compositors there and how they elevated the work, what were you noticing? Yeah. Like, what were they doing to your CG that you hadn't seen prior to that? Yeah. So that was 2002. And 
what I noticed is that at that time, Nuke didn't exist, of course. It existed in a proprietary base inside yes. of this domain. We were starting to see Shake appearing. And at the time, it was Flame. It was obviously all the Quantel machinery. And at that time, the mill was Flame-based, Inferno Flame-based, right? So what I noticed is that we were renting our stuff that looked as good as it could at the time. And I think we did quite a decent job there, super talented people. And that was then passed to Flame artists like Barnes that will bend the backwards. <laughs> regarding all the technicalities of how that doesn't matter, he is very clever, yeah. but he focused on the pixels. And I still remember how he was undistorting and redistorting blades. I could not believe it was so flaky, but... It works super well. It works super well. And he took a very painterly approach to the compositing. Him and many others, hmm. Ben as well, many of them still today are around, of course. Yeah. Uh, Neil Davies, who was phenomenally structured and how he was planning the, the compositing work. Okay. All the process. But at the time, we didn't have any color management approach. We, we didn't have the correct infrastructure. The naming was all over the place. So there was a lot <laughs> to put in place. But guess what? The output had a, a really tactile feeling. It was It's not super perfect, but had a tactile feeling, the color, the compositing. We weren't trying to hide things with style, right? That yeah. job required this blend. I thought always my CGU looked awful. Thanks God that guy picked it up. <laughs> Yes. That's amazing. And, and they made it look incredible. I said, oh my God. And I, and I remember a, a funny moment when we were doing PlayStation Mountain and I was rendering the characters and there was a mistake on my side. So one of the shades is just blue and the colors were all over the place. And the company just picked it up and fixed it. And it looked fantastic. I said, no, the one I'm going to give you is it's going to look right. And it does look right already. Let's not touch it. Said, yeah. Okay. So funny. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. It was not that kind of. It was a lot of back and forth. Oh, I need a bit of this. I need a bit of that. Can you give me a pass to control this thing? Instead of, it has to be exactly this way or there's no way. Okay. And that that gave it a lot of more team feeling to the whole thing. And I think the job ended up being better in that sense, of course. Yeah. It's true, it's true that we're working at 720p rather than 4K like now. But oh, I, I know. Different, yeah, different times, yeah. That's really interesting. Is this also back in the day where were you rendering out separate passes just as separate exports or because it wasn't or was it no. multi-channel EXR by this no. point? No, it wasn't. Not. EXR didn't even exist at that time. Yeah. What we found is that we will go to SIGGRAPH to see computer graphics and the talks and you will see a talk by, let's say, Digital Domain showing this amazing crocodile and then show you the passes and you'll come back, oh, shit, yeah. you need to do passes as well. And then yeah. you will go do the passes and tell the composer, okay, you do it this way now without really understanding the maths behind it, right. which made their lives hell. And I'm sorry at some of them because I was very painful at that point. Oh, no. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You're like, this is the future right here. Yeah. <laughs> And it's funny because one of the realizations later is like we were giving them the components with the idea of giving them more control. But yeah. over time, it developed in a strange way. And not always, but sometimes into you have the components, make it happen. So we started to put less effort on certain things. And now we're going back full circle, a particular with Azarotao. And I see it on other CG companies as well, or CG driven effort work. Yeah, that was, you know, it needs to look fantastic. And if you need it, I will give you the passes. 
but only oh, when you, that's how okay. we Wow, interesting. So it's going full circle back to yeah, yeah. So for example, at Rotel, we do not render passes by default unless is needed for any particular thing. Really? Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'd love to dive into that. But before that, okay, so you were at the mill for a bit. And then how did you transition going on your own and starting your own company? What was that transition like? When I arrived at the mill, I think we were six people in CG. The company was big, but it was only London, six people. They closed the film department to grow into New York and all that. When I left New London alone, CG was 130 people. Oh, wow. Wow. That went up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, with offices in New York, in LA, they're all dancing and dancing, people doing amazing work. We train tons of those people. But at the same time, as it happens with companies that grow, you lose a bit the spirit of discovery that, that I was so keen into. So at that point, I decided, you know what? I love it. I can't say anything wrong about the experience. It was insanely good. Yeah. But I needed a change to reinvent how I work. And which was the first step to what is now Rotal. So 12 years ago or something like that, I left, gone to a small place with the idea of reinventing it there because I wanted to use the cloud. Back then it was too expensive, so we couldn't make it happen at the time. Moving to Glassworks for a while, and they were super good, learned a lot with them as well. Yeah. And then I moved to Framestore and again learn a lot the film team and the, they were insanely good so i learned a lot there too and i guess i did it the opposite way i should have done all the movement before i went to <laughs> anyway yeah, no no but i know it's cool it, yeah it has been always a focus on learning at the end of the day yeah. but ever since those days of pioneering days at the mill and then at the various places i always felt that the way i want to look at things is not necessarily compatible with businesses sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. So they have a said, they have an investment, and there are things they're not willing to play with. Understandably, I totally respect that. So I never wanted to open a post-production slash creative studio house, ever. I was forced to because nobody was... <laughs> Doing it how you, how, how how you want an experiment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for, let's, set up a, let's set up a ninja team on the cloud. Let's figure everything out. And then we will rock and roll. Believe me, this is going to be amazing. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people understood, but they said, ooh, or it's too expensive, or mm, <laughs> we already have these. And there were other challenges first, of course. So I get it. But at that point, I started to talk to a couple of friends, and one in particular, Pablo, who said, look, this is the future. This is a way. Now is the time. And funny enough, all the companies popped up starting to use those systems, like, for example, Untold. And I said, ah, fuck, they mean me to it. <laughs> but this time, because in a way, it became very obvious that was the way, for me at least. Yeah. But the thing is that I know that the vision I had, I couldn't put in motion if there were investors. So I needed to do it in a way without investors. And that's what I did. I quit, took a couple of months to do some engineering, testing, and it was crystal clear. It was good. So set up Rotala, and we have been in business now for four years. With okay. many ups and downs, of course, in the middle of COVID. But of course... Working remotely is now natural. I think, yeah. Now, so I guess that the t- my timing was very good at that sense. In that sense, yeah. So how? So when you started Rotel, was it right before COVID, or was it at about a year? Was it 2019, like a year prior, or the discussions on research, which was a private thing for me? Okay, this friend of myself that was before COVID, mm-hmm. and then COVID hit, and I said, you know what? 
this is it. This is the time to do it. So that was, so it was, COVID started two months later. It's okay, this is it. Let's quit our jobs. Let's move on. This is it. Because it's clear that it's going to be a lockdown. It's clear we're not going to be able to work. Yeah. But after summer, we landed our first job and everything was operational. And for the next four years, we have been constantly developing and improving our systems. Yeah, that's awesome. What was your initial dive into the cloud? What software package were you testing? What were you doing more CG or was it like Nuke with compositing or Flame? What were you? Yeah. The motivation of the cloud was because I wanted to be able to work with people that are a lot better than me. And they don't happen to be all in London. Some of them are abroad. And this happened to me once at the mill. I wanted to hire a guy in Brazil that is genius, absolutely insanely talented. But I couldn't because he needed a lot of legal oh, yeah. paperwork, a work permit. So the job finished, we're still doing paperwork. So, <laughs> oh, yeah, no. so, like, what the... so at that point, it was obvious that, you know what, we need to work in a, not just remote, we need to work in a distributed model. And this is what we do. We work remote, yes and no. We are a distributed company. And the thinking is that we assemble the team for the job. So if the job requires Lego experts, then we hire people that have been working on the Lego movie. Mm -hmm. That's it. Obviously, they come with all the expertise as well. And that was the foundation of why the cloud was needed. So when we were starting to look around, there was Google Cloud and Amazon Web Services, but Amazon Web Services has been literally years ahead. Oh, yeah. Easily seven years ahead. And then... Because I had a friend at Amazon, we started to talk to some of their engineers, the super insanely talented people. For me, well, this is a no-brainer. And then we signed into Amazon Web Services, did the first job with it, and it was like, okay, this is it. And ever since, the process has been more about learning how to use it correctly so the cost don't balloon because it gets very expensive if you don't care for and the trajectory of that has been shaped by the cloud so in the same way we take advantage of it we also accept the limitations basically okay cool let's just say for flame how are you getting the footage up there is it just you send it up to a dropbox link and it downloads to the cloud server and then you're just working no. off of no okay okay no. So the premise, and this is one of the things I had to do with everyone that worked with us, we need to first brainwash them because, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. because everybody says, okay, so we work, you work on the cloud, then I download it and work on my flames. And no, the data goes in and yeah. never goes out. It yeah. does never go out. So we are, I don't know if the only one, but one of the very few that it uses 100%. Yeah. In particular, what we do is we rent machine as if it was a taxi, a pay-as-you-go model. If I need 10 machines, I pay for 10 machines. If I have 50 artists, I pay for 50 machines. Yeah. Rent the fan, et cetera. And in particular with the Flame, is yet another machine with a very particular set of specs for sure. And you connect remotely to that machine through what's called a hypervisor. So you use a piece of software like, for example, the HP Remote Desktop or, or in our case, DCB or another case, Terdici. You connect okay. to, to that machine, similar to what you do on-prem, but that machine is a machine that is on a data center in Amazon, right? And on your company. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's someone else's machine, basically. But you use 100% and it's private to you. And then with the material, the rushes and everything, what we do, if I go to a shoot, every night we upload the camera rushes into the cloud. So oh, okay. we, we upload them into an S3 repository, which is a fancy name for a big disk, a massive yeah. disk. S3 
the whole of the internet runs on top of an S3. So this is, you, you touch it every day, even if you don't know. Okay. So all of Amazon, when you buy things, is an S3. Okay. When you look at Netflix, that's an S3. So there's a massive space. And what we do is we have a few, they're called buckets, like directories. And then you dump the data from the camera into that bucket. And after a few hours, depending on the connection, you have them available. Okay. One thing we do is we have the data as fast as possible. And instead of us bringing hard drives on a plane, we just upload it. Oh. And yes, sometimes we do hard drives on a plane, but we avoid it as much as possible. So what we do is find a partner or a company specialized. For example, in Argentina, there's a few companies that upload data at speed. So you hire them, so you can hear the drives. And then we don't need to ship drives with the risk of breaking things. It has happened two times. The client insists on having drives. We say, no, thank you very much. Just upload it here. <laughs> and we arrived to London. They arrived to, in this case, Berlin, for example. They call us, Jordi, we lost one of the drives. It, it broke down. Can I download from the cloud? I say, yeah, of course. Here is the link. That's amazing. But the thinking is that we can move in different ways. And this is one of the examples. And the data, for example, when it lands into a S3 bucket, automatically gets processed and we do a quality control check on everything that comes in all automatic. I don't need to do anything. It just okay. lands and we run this QC processes through telestring quality control. Oh, cool. Cool. Okay. That's great. How long did it take you to figure all this out? You mentioned you left your previous job and then maybe a few months later, you guys had your first official job through Rotel, but like how, what was the experimentation like for you guys? We did hire top Amazon engineer. Oh, nice. He is insanely good and still working with us today. And then our pipeline, and my partner, one of my partners, he's a superb programmer. He did study computer science and he's a, a top FX artist. He was at DNEC for many years, right? Yeah. And so we, together, the three of us built the whole thing and it was pretty straightforward. I think we put the whole thing in two months, literally. And then wow. it's true that we learn and say, okay, and, and over, over the first two years, and still today we do it, but in the first two years, even more, we did a job and stopped for a month to improve that. So we did a project, didn't want to do more than one, stopped for a full month to improve and fix all the problems and learn. So for example, we avoided works with fluids until year two. We okay. avoided character work with fur until year three. Oh, um, wow. Because we know that we'll have a strain on certain things that we're not ready. And we don't, we're not ready because we don't know the numbers. If tomorrow we get a surprise bill from Amazon, we'll be literally throwing ourselves through the window. Oh, right? no, so, no, no. So we have to be literally step by step, making sure we have the promise and over deliver. And we get into the battles with full disability. And that's what we did. The first in incarnation of the system has been, it was two months. And then for two years have been on massive revamps. And the last two years have been incremental tweaks. Now there are no massive revamps. The tweaks are very small because everything is working as expected. And right now we we are finished, we finished this Friday job. And right now we're going to stop for three weeks to fix a couple of things that we can improve. That's so amazing. Yeah, I find that really cool that you guys take breaks between projects to then yeah. figure out like what the pressure points are on the last project and make things better. What were some of the things you had to change in the first two years? Because you said those were bigger changes on your pipeline and workflow. Yeah, in terms of our CG and our Nuke, for example, at the beginning, there was no flame on the cloud. 
it was a prototype. So we were doing with Houdini and Nuke, and that was it. And we build the tools to for them to talk to, with our production system. We don't use Shot Grid or Shotgun. We we use Nim. Yeah. From a company in New York. They are, they are really nice guys. And the nice thing is that you can talk to the guys, talk to Andrew and say, hey, this is not working. Can you fix it? And the next day you have a fix, basically. Oh, cool. Cool. And, okay. And that, that's, that's the key for us. And then what we have done is build a lot of our software to talk to that, that to NIM. So the first two years we were working on that. And when Flame arrived, he threw a curveball on a few things that we were not aware of, of course. Okay. And, and we had to re engineer a few things because of that. And now we are in the stage of fasting our Nuke Studio and moving all the timeline management from A to Z through Flame. Right. I, I love Nuke Studio and Hero. I love it. But it's true that for the kind of things we do, it's not what we're after. Really? Okay. We, we still use it. We still have licenses, of course. But yeah, the fact that you cannot conform certain material coming from a drone, for example, that those things are killers for me. Really? So, so it's more of a file type limitation? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Okay. So, so yeah, as a tool, is amazing. The concepts are amazing. But I think it's, and, and it has been for a while, is I think I'm finished on many areas. And they should get those things up and running properly. But and it has improved from the first version for sure. But I think it's just simpler and better to just use Flame for that. The conforming tools in Flame are insane. Yeah, I know. And a good example is when we get an, a big edit update, do that in Flame takes half an hour. Mm -hmm. Doing that in Hero takes two days. Whoa. Okay, that's, that's huge. Yeah, uh, and it kills us every time. So we need to improve those things. Okay. On other areas, on other areas Hero is phenomenal. So what we're doing now is the conform happens on Flame. We export that into Hero, and from Hero we speed all the material to the artist. That's that, how we do it. Okay. Essentially, what you're saying is Hero has more options for exporting material out to different artists. Is that the... Yeah, yeah. Well, because we have tailored it to a pipeline. It is super convenient, but and to analyze things is very convenient as well. And to work in a certain scale is very convenient. I think we are in that space, but seeing what Autodesk has done with Flame, and to be honest, has been a massive surprise for me. The API they have built is phenomenal. So we plan to build the same tools that we have built on, on Hero to put them on Flame. That's what we are to do. Okay. Okay. I see. Now, if Flame was on the cloud when you started, would you have utilized that or would you have still gone down the Nuke Studio slash Hero path? At the beginning, I would have gone the Nuke Studio because I didn't have the knowledge on Flame. I learned okay. a little bit, very little. That's the reason probably you see me at Logic Forum so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I want to learn from you guys. Yeah. But it was obvious that we started to dig. Even, even Paolo, he said, Jordi, this guideline, the, the API is incredibly good. I love Flame internals. Okay, fantastic. Oh, you cool. like that? He's super critical with this thing. So for me, it was like, okay, we, we the backbone should be Flame. And we're treating Flame as a first-class citizen. And like, I believe many other companies that treat it as a finishing tool, uh, we come shots in Flame as well. And okay. City shots and designs things there. And, and the difference, obviously, is the artists are super experienced. So you bring a Flame artist and they manage the client. The whole thing looks amazing. Yeah. Thank you very much. You make us look <laughs> very good. Bombay was a good example. Oh, yeah. That was a cool spot you guys did. Yeah. Yeah. 
So Jay was running the flame together with Alford and they did an amazing job and looked after the job, after production and pushed the team. So you're hiring more than a compositor. That's to me the dead feeling. Yeah, yeah. I also noticed a lot of the work you do seems to be longer form for advertising. Generally, advertise, it's maybe a 60-second spot or something. But on your website, I see a lot of things that are like a minute and a half, if not five minutes, like the Lego yeah. piece. That's a whole other level of project management yeah. as well. Yeah, and we are, our, our point or what we want to do is we want to work on the projects that that everybody else shit themselves, basically. That's, <laughs> right, right. You want to work on the jobs that scare everyone else. And that's a very far away goal. It's difficult because, I, let's be honest, there are amazing post companies everywhere nowadays. Yeah. But we are already taking challenges that many other people say, this is impossible. I'm saying, yeah, that, we can do that. And we have. And BMW is a good example of that. Yeah, that was great. So we have... We, our point of view is to have fun, make sure we go into the most interesting projects, be that advertising and installation, a virtual experience, whatever, museum, doesn't matter. And then have fun, break some new ground, hopefully, and come back with it, perhaps with a few scratches and a few one yeah. <laughs> But But you had a good experience and we don't want to, we don't want to grow into a 200 men company or bigger than that. We want to stay very small yeah. and being able to do the kind of things that is too risk for other places to, to jump in. Interesting. Yeah, that's cool. Speaking of BMW, what were some of the newer things you guys were experimenting with? Um, I know in the past you had said you utilize a lot of Houdini. Was a lot of that through Houdini and then all the compositing mostly in Flame or was it a lot of Nuke or? We are Houdini only company. We don't mm -hmm. use Maya or anything else. Yes, sometimes we get Maya licenses to do a particular thing or import data. And sometimes has happened like in Lego that we set up a Maya team to do the animation, but we don't support Maya. We don't even have it installed. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> it, it's hard for, uh, that's the reason my vision wouldn't be tolerated by an investor. I know that's the reason we don't have investors. <laughs> it's too drastic in some areas. And once you understand the philosophy, then you buy into it, of course. But it's, it's just easier not to explain. Just go and do it. Yeah, yeah. Now, now it's proven that works, right? So the whole thing is Houdini plus Nuke and Flame. And then we get a special kit when it's needed. And in the case of BMW, what happened is that when we were talking about the project, there were other companies bidding into it. And the traditional approach that everyone put into the, as a first proposal, including us, was let's build a CGI head and, and animate it and the same way they do in the real, the real. And they render it and light it and all that. But what it was clear by meeting the director that she is really Stephanie Sohov, who's an amazing performance director. Okay. Instantly, also, she really is taking care of the performance more, more than the world even she is really into the performance of the person so it was clear that it would look like a caricature and we have examples of that we have seen them before yeah. when you do full cgi faces and animate them it always look funny mm -hmm. funny in meaning bad and when you want to do it well it takes so much time and it costs so much money that the job just didn't have the budget so on a first installation of the whole thing it was obvious that there was no budget for that so to me it was like a perfect storm that we could solve so if you look at it from a different angle we can do the face replacement with this technology that we have and we have tested and give the director full creative performance allow her to do the lighting of the scenes 
exactly as she wanted, no limitations, no tracking markers, no nothing. Wow. The only thing is that I needed to see the eyes, the nose, and the mouth of the character. That's uh, the only thing I was asking her. It's don't, always don't the give eyes. Me, <laughs> yeah. don't, give me, don't give me three back-quarter jobs. Don't give me three quarters, don't, because I cannot do that. So, well, at least on the time. Yeah. So that's what we did. We put the bit, and with the technique that we developed, which but what we reinvented into it is a first, and we did a test. They loved it, and when we went to set, uh, and you look at the bits, one of them have, was half the price of the other, thanks to the technique. Oh. And then what I did on set, we, I took camera rushes uh, from the VIT guy, low, small quality. Yeah. Send it to the guys here to say, can you apply the face on this one? And then they sent me a quick time the next day with the first pass, no comp, nothing, straight yeah. out of the box. And the client, the director, everyone, they were so impressed. Wow. They were even giving me hugs, and two of them were asking to invest in Rotas. And I think oh, they were <laughs> that's amazing. But the nice bit of it is that he built so much credibility, and that suddenly a commercial that was the car and this character on the car became about the journey of the car. So we quoted six shots, and we ended up doing 31. I was going to say, there were a lot of shots in there. Yeah. 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 Did you know and, it was going to be that long of a piece? Yeah. Oh, no. really? Oh, really? No. <laughs> well, when we see the edit, we took the decision, you know what? The edit is so good compared to what we see so before. It's so good. The guys at Cabin did such an amazing job that I said, we need to do this. Even yeah. if we don't make money and it doesn't matter, this is too good not to. So we went through that road. And thanks to the technique that we developed, the face replacements were literally child's game it was super simple really yeah we did 31 shots in two weeks wow if you don't maybe it's proprietary what were you using for the tracking or is it something you guys cooked up yourself we wrote some code to take care of image stabilization and close-ups because the thing that you don't see using these techniques is close-ups of the eyes you don't see that and you don't see for example very nuanced details in which the character interacts with things in the head, for example, in the face. So we wanted, we did that. We wanted to do that, and we put a ton of effort into that. And funny enough, we got the team working on the face manipulation. They were only in flame. Oh, really? Yeah. You know, I've met some people like that too that do a lot of yeah retouching or whatever, but they're all flame, like no yeah. nuke, no yeah. yeah. <laughs> because I knew about the beauty work that certain artists did as so, well. In their hands, it's going to be so much easier. So we got a group of nuke artists that were dealing with the set extensions, buildings, perhaps a first pass on the face, then that was passing to flame, and they were literally sculpted, painted in a oh, yeah. And playing with the eyes because obviously the makeup that we put on the actress had an implication of what was coming from the face replacement. And we had to enhance things. And I remember some of the flame artists having to paint eyelashes. And for example, we had a, a German flame artist called Hong Ru, who's brilliant. Um, Sinan, who is on the oh, Logic Sinan? Forum. Yeah. And he's amazing. He did an amazing job too. So the team elevated it once again, like before they elevated it. And yes, it's true. It, it was a learning process as well, because what in our naivety under these lighting conditions was done pretty much. When you go into very close ups, that was a completely different game. Different game. Yeah. And we had a few iterations. So 
although the CG side of generating the faces took only two weeks, the compositing took longer because it's just very finicky. If you don't get it right, the, the faces There's something are exactly. What we did is allow them to bring their own experiences and learnings because if you notice the character as it evolves, becomes a little bit more human every time. So it was not just compositing, it had to feel like it was growing out of being an avatar to become a real person. Yeah. The compositing of the face was really difficult. I'm really curious, what did you guys learn through this process of human faces and whatnot and how to make it look as real as possible? Yeah, because of the technique, we learned that if the director of photography was having an out-of-focus shot, mm -hmm. that was fine. For us, that was fine, which to me was like, holy cow, we cracked that. Yeah. The lighting, flashing lighting, not a problem. Okay. But we learned that when we were using strobing lighting on a discotheque, for example, the system will generate a phase that was not appropriate. For example, when the, there are two frames that were took ages to crack, just two frames. Just two frames. Because when the flashing happens, the face changes. And we had to go back into position. And there was no way. So the whole act was to bring the frame before and after. And actually, yeah. painted, painted I was going to say, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah, I was going to say, that, it's probably that. Just two frames that were painted by hand, literally. Oh, wow. So you couldn't even take this frame, that frame, and then do a time warp kind of like motion estimation. And then. Yeah. It was a bit of that and then color on top and all that. And wow. it, it took a bit. That's the thing that took the most. And Sina was in charge of one of them. And I think who was the other one? They did a great job. It, it, it was hardcore. And I remember at one point, we were painting away on one of them and said, guys, is the, we took the wrong turn. We need to start again on this frame. Again. Oh, wow. We had to, yeah, we started. We, we overcooking it. it. It doesn't look right. Let's go back. Okay. But I guess... And this is one of the things when you work with very senior artists, everybody leaves the ego on the side and they focus on the pixels and they say, yeah, you're right. It's, it's over cooked. Let's do it again. Gotcha. Okay. That's yeah. really interesting. Yeah. yeah. So for that, the whole CG, the car and all of that, it was probably like easy. It was more of the face that was like the hard yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah, obviously, they have this crazy draconian security measures nowadays with cars. They give you zebra cars. And then you need to reskin them. Really? That's what you guys had to do? Every single shot inside the city, the car is being reskinned. Wow. The, the, okay. The Even the shots at night inside the tunnel, which I was saying, look, we're in the middle of nowhere. There is no one. Yeah. Can we just take the real car and not do anything? It's night. It's lights on and that's it. No, it has to be the zebra car. Oh my gosh. Hey, did so, that help with tracking at all? Yeah. <laughs> Having the zebra. <laughs> yeah, on, on the big, very bright shots, yes, but on the night shots, you cannot see anything. You could just see the lights. Oh, okay. I'm putting the car behind the lights. That was a bit of a number, but we have done that many times. So it is not a major issue. It just took a little bit of time. And, and funny enough, the execution of the face was not a problem. The execution of the car was not a problem. Yeah. The execution of the dragonfly, not a problem. The city extensions with it, not a problem. The biggest problem was obviously the design part of things at the beginning when they are in this kind of metaverse because it was very fluid and it's difficult to do. And the intention, creatively speaking, is that it should look like a place you don't want to be. So yeah. it kind of looked good. It looked great. It, looked, it has to have a bit of a feeling of a video game slash large virtual reality that and if you look 
the virtual reality looks awful, right? But we needed a bit of that. So that fine line took ages and the portal, that took ages. Oh, as well. okay. Okay. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. curious. Do you guys also utilize Keen tools and Nuke for any of your like tracking or? We did try Keen tools on the face for two shots that, w- that the director gave us that were extreme. It was not good enough for what we needed in terms of resolution because if you remember that the job is for case reprojecting textures is very tricky and it was not good enough so okay. said, it will do the job for these things but for this particular show we're trying to sell that's not the route and we needed to talk to the client and say look guys we told you we will try but these shots are impossible so yeah gotcha you're gonna to have to find an alternative as i said <laughs> yeah okay gotcha we were on set i told them look guys this shot impossible so give me a backup because i don't think we can do it oh we that's amazing and they did, yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, the well, director of photography went bananas with the camera. If I tell you the kind of things he was doing, like, I can't believe it. Oh, really? He was, he was giving us shots that were filmed at six frames per second with 360 open shutter. So literally oh, wow. a, a blur. And we needed to put the face in there. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I don't think it I've was, even seen a commercial shot like that, like, ever. Yeah. That's amazing. Look at the sequence on the party. There are a few of those shots. Okay. Okay, yeah, I'll rewatch that. That's awesome. What did you guys learn post that job? What did you decide to change in your kind of pipeline workflow after that? It was clear that a big chunk of the work in terms of management data was because we didn't have the right tools for Flame to talk to folder structure. We had a very vanilla style thing on a couple of areas. So we are working on that still today. Oh, I see. So technically speaking, that was the thing that, that we know we need to fix. And then on, on the other side, the, doing this job reassure, has reassured us that we can go really far. The technique that we have developed can go much further than that. And I really hope that all the creative teams that want to do something based on, on, on face replacements, voice puppeteering, audio puppeteering of faces, they contact us because we really have some of the best artists in the world working with us. That's amazing. And is it truly global? Do you pick from anywhere or is it mostly yeah. kind of European based? No, we the first two years we develop our own software to have zero latency almost from anywhere in the world. So we had we for example in, in BMW and Lego. In BMW have one artist in Alaska, I'm not joking. Oh wow, no way. Another, another in Bulgaria, another in Spain. Then the lighting artist, one of them was in Brazil. Literally. Oh, wow. Okay. So truly global. And that's one of the beautiful things. We can grow up super fast and recruit super fast. And then we have been talking, in fact, to flame artists in Philippines, in Barcelona, in France. Oh, wow. Because it's not a problem. We just ship the flame back and forth virtually, of course. Virtually, yes. Yeah. yeah. I'm curious, payment-wise, does it? do you have to go through any visa stuff when you're, or is it, no, none of that? No, international companies, no? so you basically, you we don't hire people full-time at Rotal. Yeah, we, gotcha. We, okay, so it's more like a contractor-based. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. So it is the good and the bad thing. Again, everything that you decide in life is going to have a good thing and a bad thing attached to it, no matter <laughs> okay. what. Right. The decision of being able to recruit globally means that those artists cannot be full-time with us. We cannot open offices all over the world. Which is I know. So what we do is hire contractors, freelancers, put a contract in front of them. If they are interested in the contract and the job, we move on and we do it. Yeah. And we, we use modern payment systems like Revolut to pay them. Okay, cool. 
Some artists are very difficult to pay because they live in countries that, for example, don't accept American dollars, for example. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Yeah, if you run into any of those hurdles. Okay. Yeah, that is a nightmare sometimes. Yeah. yeah. We crack it. We have fun on one of the jokes. We have fun. One of the artists live in a country, I shall not name. Okay. But <laughs> all legal, of course. But the country has a firewall blocking them. Oh, jeez. VPNs. So we had to make a double hop of him connecting to Germany, from Germany entering a VPN, then connect to London to do the work. Wow. And, and, and latency and was I, still good? <laughs> the problem is that the IP address will change randomly. So for us to open the door for him, we needed to change the address every time. So he would call me and say, hey, Jordi, they changed the IP. This is the new one. And I will go there, change the IP, and then he can oh, connect. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. And sometimes it was once a week, sometimes it was three times a day. Oh, my day. God. That's crazy. Wow. <laughs> Things I would not even think about. <laughs> oh, Again, the decision of going cloud has a lot of advantages and disadvantages as well. You have to think of those things as well. Yeah. And Jordi, are you running the flame? Are you taking things to the finish line and doing deliverable? Or do you just, are you hiring flame artists to do that? I'm a CG artist and arguably we're strong on the CG side. Very strong. Okay. On the compositing side, we rely on super senior artists. And when we say super senior is... We're not talking senior seven years. Senior is okay, yeah. 20 years. Right. So yeah. We only hire artists with 20 years experience or because one of them may have done something truly exceptional. So everyone is pretty much my age. And then what we do is we bring the team in place and we play the strength. So if we bring someone that is a top flame artist and let him do his thing and trust them and just tell them, look, this is what we need to answer as a brief and that's it. Yeah. Give them a ton of freedom, actually. We give them a lot of freedom. And oh, if it doesn't cool. work, we tell them. And sometimes happens that the skills don't quite match to what I thought at the beginning. But in that sense, it's very easy. But I know that I need to get a bit into flame to learn a little bit, to, to understand what the problems are so I can fix them. And yeah. For that. Yeah. Okay. So I'm learning a little bit, little, little by little. That's awesome. Seeing as how you guys are all cloud-based, and you're not going backwards, right? You're not going to go back to yeah. a brick and... Yeah, yeah. Do you see more companies adopting this or... Yeah. You can start to see many companies adopting simplified version of what we do on the cloud, and they're doing great. Whereas they're trying our way... We have built everything custom from scratch, which is the hardcore way of doing it. But we... Because the kind of goals we have, we need full control. We cannot rely on anywhere. It has to be our way or on our way. And then what is coming apparent is the apparent is that other people see, well, as a business seems like it's viable, so let's try. And of course, I think it's a very sexy thing to say there is no CapEx. Yeah. I don't need an investor. I set up the company with no money, come on, as, as you because right. I only pay for what I use. So I don't need to buy a massive server, no switches, no networks, no robot tapes, nothing. Okay. I set up the company in five minutes. And the only thing is, good, and you can find it, is a friend of mine forgot to switch off switch off one of the databases that he was running. And that month he got a loan from the database, 40 grand. Oh, no. Okay, okay. I do you want to need, dive into that. You need How, to know what you're doing. Yeah. So also, do you think, okay, for let's say the jobs you're taking, have you found that like good medium of how many people to hire? Or because I'm just wondering, is there like a cap where you're like, okay, we need 10 artists, but I'm like, oh, the amount mm -hmm. of data no. we're going to produce. No? Okay. No. Okay. We took certain choices like not using Naya, for example, 
or not using 3 Studio Max or Cinema 4D and focus on Houdini because of that. Because, yeah, and these are technicalities that may seem silly. Like, for example, when you have a Maya scene and you have a massive character, that's, that scene that you're saving is perhaps 600 megabytes, 800 megabytes. Yeah. We, we have a guy that saves that scene 140 times. When you're saving that 140 times, that costs a fortune on the cloud. Right. So we chop the trees and we don't do that. And Maya is all, sorry, Houdini is all references. So the scenes are tiny, are kilobytes. Okay. So that was one of the reasons. And then, although you can use, with Maya, you can use references, also it's very flaky in certain things. So for me, you know what? Let's keep it simple. And our goal is to not build glue. We don't build glue. And that means software to connect Maya to Houdini or 3 Studio Max to Houdini or Cinema for to Houdini. We don't write software for that. That's gone. <laughs> and that means that instead of having a department with 10 engineers writing code, we have one guy investing two days a month doing that. That's it. Oh, wow. Okay. That's a big difference. That's, that's a big difference. And he's the guy that is in production generating pixels. And it's just a pipeline guy. So in, in a way, we have taken very hard decisions Animators obviously come and they get a brutal shock because we don't allow them to animate in Maya. And, say, no, I know. No, animate and let's be honest, the tools for animation in Houdini are not as mature yet. So mm, it, it okay. takes longer. But I was telling them, look, I'm happy to pay you for two more days to do this shot or three more days, for example, because you are working on this environment. Yeah. But let's not complicate things. Our system is very simple and very elegant with that idea. That's great. Was your transition, or have you been a Houdini user for since its beginning? Or no, I started to dive into it in version six and then eight. Oh wow! Okay, so that it's been a while then. Yeah, a while, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah 14, Fourteen years ago, but on a couple of jobs, and then Softimage, which was what I using Softimage XSI, brought this new tool set called Ice, who was amazing. And at that point, I said, you know what? It's no point of learning Houdini anymore because this takes oh. 90% there, and then that specialist can do that. But then out to this, unfortunately, had the brilliant idea of buying Softimage and killing it. I know. Well, thank you very much. Now I'm going to have to go to Houdini again. Yeah. <laughs> and, and in a way, I, I must confess that Autodesk made themselves the bet because I think that was the worst decision they have taken in a long time. That's unbelievable. I've Yeah, I've heard about that. There are a lot of Softimage users that, out there. Yeah. And, 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 I, and I thought, look, surely they won't delete, they won't kill it because the development team of those projects are not that big and surely cost money, but not that big. But the user base, it was super loyal and the companies like Glassware had a massive impact, of course. They were running soft demands oh, non-stop and okay. that was the advantage. So Glassware, like at the time the mill, they had to take the decision of what do we do? Do we go right or do we go left? And many of them went left to, let's say, Maya or Cinema 4D. And others say, you know what? If I'm going to buy the bullet, I go Houdini and let's see what happens. Yeah. And for me, it was because I had a bit of experience before, and it was crystal clear. Like, I'm going to invest on that, and it's worked really well. On, on That's cool. I know you could do so much in it. You yeah. did mention the animation tools aren't there as much developed yeah. as Maya, but yeah, it'll get there, I'm sure. Well, on every iteration, the changes that are, are insane. If you see the list of improvements on any other package, there's more. In, in Softimage, uh, it was big. And then Houdini, it was like 10 oh, times that. Yeah, yeah, insane. Yeah, insane. insane. I, know. I don't know. I was talking to the head of engineering and I said, guys, uh, you're going too fast. <laughs> I have to walk too long. <laughs> Slip down a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Slow down, please. Slow down. 
Yeah, I always like their yearly, whenever they release a new version, they call it the sneak peek. And even though yeah. I don't even know Houdini at all, yeah. it's just yeah. fun to see like what you can do. And I'm always like, oh man, I should learn it because wow, that yeah. looks really cool. Yeah, <laughs> It is It is a constant recycling and relearning. So it is brutal. The good thing is that they finish things. So they develop a rigging system. The rigging is not good enough and they keep going on it and then, until they get it right. And I know they have developed, for example, the F-Credit that have developed from scratch three times already. Oh, jeez. Okay. And this is one of the key things for me. When I look at the software manufacturer before I invest time and money into anyone, adding features and finishing them or are they just adding features and abandoning? Yeah. How do you and feel about it? Flame right now? Do you think they're adding enough features yeah. that you're... If you ask me 10 years ago, I will have said Flame is dead. But this is not going anywhere. But someone there did the right thing and hired the right guy. Who the, I don't know who that guy is. Yeah. And that guy is taking the right decisions and putting the emphasis on EXR multi-channel, on a Python API properly developed, on moving into OCIO uh, on an open timeline IO. You can see someone is owning this product and literally pushing. And I really hope people get trained into flame because one of the problems that we're going to face uh, as an industry is that many flame artists are going to start retiring one day. I know. We're going to pick up the pieces, right? Yeah, it's funny you say that. I was talking to a new compositor a few days ago and they even mentioned they're like, is flame going to be around in a few years? I'm like, it will be. It's also, it's been around for over 30 years. I mean, it's got the history, but it is amazing how people are still worried. They're like, wait, is this still a thing? I'm not a fanboy on anything really. I think uh, the closest I'm of a fanboy perhaps is Apple and, and Houdini, but the reality is that being very pragmatic, I tell my team, look, you can do the exact same things, if not better, in Flame than in Nuke. And there will be a couple of things in Nuke you can do better, for sure. Yeah. And yet you can customize it backwards, and that's the real value, in my opinion. For sure. But when you look at these things, hello, this is pretty obvious to me that is, there is a space for Flame. And man, to all the ingesting, pipeline, timeline management, mastering, delivery, it's just second to none. So for me, it's... It's obvious that it's here to stay. We just need young people to come in, of course, too. Yep. And I see some companies training young guys into Flame. I see that. But I think it has to be more orchestrated. Yeah. Companies like Scape Studios, for example, should perhaps start training Flame artists and they will have a job instantly. Yeah, for sure. Well, Jordi, thank you so much. This was so fun talking. And yeah. I can't wait to see what, what's coming next with uh, Rotau and what you guys are up to. Maybe even another year, have you back on and we could talk about what you guys have learned throughout the year or whatnot. That'd be fun. That would be great. I want to reflect back on, on 2024, which was yeah. a very interesting one. And with new people that we are bringing in into Rota, hopefully we can grow to a size that we can be more visible all the time because we have been very stealth for the last four years, as let's say yeah. that way. So yeah, I would love to. Okay, awesome. And thank you to all the flame artists, guys. You're amazing. <laughs> nice. Yeah, thank you. All right, Jordy, talk soon. Thank you, man. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, bye. This episode of The Logic Podcast is brought to you by AJA, together with Flame since 2006. If you would like anything that Boris FX has to offer, including Synthize, you can save 15% with our new affiliate links by going to logic.tv slash Boris Logic Academy Pro. Learn, connect, advance with Autodesk Flame. When you get a chance, check out logicacademypro.com. 
to see all the amazing educational offerings that we have.